after my second bankruptcy, I literally stripped everything down within my psyche, within my consciousness, within my belief systems. And then I was able to rebuild from a completely different place. Because had I just gone off and did my same MO, I would have created exactly the same. Hey everyone, I'm Yazan Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I want to welcome this week's guest, Susie Batiste, to our show today. Susie is the founder and CEO of Poopery and Supernatural. She's created an enterprise that's worth over $500 million and made Forbes America's Richest Self-Made Women list without barring a dime or raising a single dollar of outside funding. But success did not come easy to her. Susie experienced some of life's lowest lows, from poverty, sexual and domestic abuse, depression, two bankruptcies, and a suicide attempt, which led her to what she calls the luxury of losing everything. After harnessing the power of intuition, her journey led her to building businesses that only made her feel alive. Her newest project, Alive OS, teaches others how to recognize alive ideas by tuning in to their intuition and diving deep into creative energy to achieve an abundant flow state in life and in business. Susie is a mother, spiritual seeker, mentor, entrepreneur, and innovator, and we're so excited to have her with us today. Welcome to the show, Susie. Oh, thank you. Hi. I'm so excited to be here. We are as well, and I've been following your journey over the years, and I'm just so inspired by your incredible story and who you are as a person, so I cannot wait for our audience to learn more about you today. Well, thank you. I'm excited to share. So on this show, we always love to start from the beginning. How was your life growing up? You seem to be a very natural entrepreneur and creator. Where did that come from? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. This week I've been, um, or the past two weeks, someone's been interviewing me for my book. You know, I'm hoping to get it out at some point, birth this thing. But um, as I was going back through my childhood, I really realized I grew up without a lot of money which was actually a gift because it made me very resourceful. I didn't think about buying things. You know, I thought about all my clothes were made, you know, by my mother and my grandmother. And then I learned to sew when I, gosh, probably was like 10, I think, or 11. Um, So anytime I needed Barbie clothes, I would make them. If I needed a belt rack in my bedroom, I'd go out to the garage and get a piece of wood and nails. So I grew up like that. But also, so on one hand, I became very resourceful and, you know, had these amazing skills that served me later as an entrepreneur, but also grew up in in a dysfunctional environment with my dad being a bipolar alcoholic, my mom addicted to pain pills. They were divorced when I was 10 years old. And, um, you know, so it was, uh, and what I actually learned from that particular thing was really this amazing intuition. And uh, it was a hypervigilance that now I've honed into just intuition. So I grew up like that. My mother married my stepdad. I was molested by my stepfather. I was bankrupt, divorced, and um, I was married, bankrupt, divorced by the time I was 20 years old. Tried to kill myself when I was 21 in abusive marriage at, and pregnant at 23. Um, escaped that and was with my last husband for 26 years when I filed my second bankruptcy at 37. I just found out. I've been telling people 38. I just had a, I just had a private investigator go back to my past because, you know, it's like, was I 37? Was I 38? I don't know. So now I know I was 37. Um, and that was my second bankruptcy. Um, so the ride has been pretty wild, um, but some amazing skills were developed within that hardship. 
Wow, there is so much to unpack there. And you went through quite the experience in your childhood and early adult life. And what I think is very interesting reading more about you and getting to know you is that you've never really had that victim mentality. And you've always tried to be proactive about getting yourself out of a certain situation. And one thing that you had mentioned is that at that point of your life, you really thought that money was a gateway to your success and a way that you can get out of the hardship that you were going through. Can you share more about how you thought about your money and happiness at that point of your life? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, I grew up with some really limiting beliefs around money. Um, Basically, I spent, once I filed bankruptcy, I spent the next four years in what I call a spiritual sabbatical. You know, I I worked a little on the side. I didn't get to run off to India, but I stayed at my home studying multiple religions and belief systems and had the luxury of going to a Byron Katie workshop where I realized that really my beliefs were actually what was holding me back in my life. And I was what you maybe call reverse manifesting. So what I was doing is I started claiming that I had created some of that life. And with that, a lot of the concepts around money that I really got to, to unwind or, or unprogram, uh, deprogram within my psyche are very innocent ones. Like in the Bible where it says like, it's easier for a rich man to get through heaven than a camel to get through an eye of a needle. So some of these things sound very benign. You know, my mother used to say, be careful because those rich people are snobs, you know, they're not nice and they don't. So I literally worked for six months on my beliefs about money. And then, you know, ironically, I uh, created Poopery, but I believe that um, very early on, you know, I had a, a generational p- uh, pattern of poverty. You know, my great grandfather, you know, was not a slave, thank God. You know, we're going through a lot of that right now, but he lived in a shack on a cotton field. You know, he, my family was cotton pickers, you know, um, and then my father's family was all the Irish poor immigrants. So from both sides of my mom and dad's family, I had this poverty consciousness that I had to work really hard of getting out of, you know? So on one hand, I was very resourceful and could kept reinventing myself. On the other hand, I just kept setting myself up for failure time and time again. So before you really had the awareness that you had limiting beliefs and that you were setting yourself up for failure, you mentioned that your second bankruptcy was at the age of 37. And at that point, you were the sole provider of your two young children. You deem yourself the worst entrepreneur in the world, and you felt financially and spiritually bankrupt. Can you take us back to that time? Because that was a big turning point for you in your life. Yeah, I was finally doing really well in my life. I was recruiting. I was a vice president of a recruiting firm. And, um, you know, we lived in a great little suburban house, you know, with the, you know, three bedrooms, two baths, you know, two cars. We were finally, for the first time in my life, like stable. And um, I decided we need a bigger house, right? So we, um, there would be some details of the salacious details on whenever we get in. But anyway, I really... We, we bought too big of a house, got a Range Rover and Mercedes. We were living the suburban life, right? Like where you're, you know, you're paying your bills, you know, it's going. Because I, I was making quite a bit of money then, and I just thought it was going to last forever. And um, what's really interesting is I came up with this idea called Greener Grass, and it was a recruiting platform that matched a person's culture to a company's culture. And which is a great idea now. I mean, really, it was 20 years. Who knows? It could have reinvented the way recruiting is done. It's the way it should be done. But um, 
that I, I really became a contractor and started working less and putting more time and energy into this this new company. And I was in the final stages of getting $5 million of VC funding. And I had psychologists on board and personality experts. It was really pretty amazing. It's the way people do it now. I was doing back in, you know, 2000. And, um, and then the stock market crashed. And the, the, the VCs pulled out. They were like, uh, no, you know, we're not doing this. We're not doing anything. And I'd already leveraged us so hard. And I knew we were pretty, it was like I was banking on, you know, I was banking too much. And we were already living the way most people live, which is at our means. But, you know, if anything happened, it would have been bad. So, um, yeah, I, you know, lost everything, you know, slowly the cars started getting, you know, first it was the Range Rover, then it was a Mercedes and the, the house and everything kept slipping away. And I fell into a really dark depression, like the biggest depression. And if I hadn't had my children, I'm absolutely sure I would have tried to kill myself again. But because I had a family, I, um, really just sank into a really deep depression. And I was done with business. I thought I'm literally the world's worst entrepreneur. I thought business was the enemy. You know, who wants to do this? Who wants to do this life? Um, But really, and then I had that moment where I was so done, I got down on my knees and really screamed to God and just said, like, you need to take me. Like, I'm I'm done. You know, I'm not going to kill myself, but I'm ready to die. I'm ready to die because I'm not going to do this. And, um, then, you know, a couple of days later, I have Byron Katie's book in my hand that I'm off on her workshop and then walk out of there, um, having peace really for the first time in my life. Um, so that was the big pivot and turning point in, in my journey. After losing everything, you mentioned that you were completely done with business. You thought business was your enemy and you really focused on working on yourself and going through a very deep spiritual journey. Can you talk to us about how Poopery, your company came about when you were not in the mentality of ever starting a business again? Yeah. So um, what happened was, so I went to Byron Katie, I came home, had, still had, didn't have any desire for business. Um, I knew what wealth was. I knew what being rich was and it had nothing to do with money. I, I felt wealthy, you know, and money had nothing or business had nothing to do with it. So I wrote a course called um, Inside Out, how to, um, how to create a life you desire by going within or something like that. Put five women through the course. Nobody finished it. They took like you know, four lessons. And I think they thought like, Hey, or, or I thought somehow I had a belief, like I haven't made any money, right? I, I just bought bankruptcy. Why am I teaching a course on abundance? So I pushed that to the side. The idea for Poopery came to me. And then really shortly after that, I started traveling down to Peru. So I'd already started Poopery, but I would leave Poopery for two weeks at a time with no cell phone, no Wi-Fi. I would just tell my team, which was three people. And I'd be like, listen, like you got to man the ships here. I got to go you know, keep continuing this awakening. Really, it's funny that people know me as an entrepreneur because my priority was my spiritual and personal development. Business just happened to be what I did when I was in between. So it's really interesting. But my top priority was always that. So I'll go down to Peru. I'm bouncing back and forth. And one trip, I was absolutely sure, like, what am I doing being in business. I need to be a shaman, you know, like this is my purpose. This is what I'm supposed to do. I'm here to help heal this planet and help heal people. And it was as I was getting healed, which is kind of common what people, you know, you start to get healed and you want to share it. 
And I go down and the shaman says, um, basically, he said, he said, shamans move energy. Like when you're in ayahuasca, they move dark, help move dark energies out so that you have space for good, better energies to come into or to, to occupy and grow within you. And he said, so shamans move energy. Money is energy. And business, actually, there's no greater form of moving money in the world than business. So therefore, you can create more energy and more healing in the world by staying in business than you can down here pouring ayahuasca to 20 people at a time. And I was like, wow, okay. Because I thought I was so off my path, you know? So then I really started integrating my spirituality into business. It used to be I had my family life, my spiritual life, and then my business life, right? And they were all pretty separate. And then at some point, they all, once we started doing plant medicines, they all started merging. I started bringing my spirituality, my business, my family got into spirituality, they were in business. So it, it was no longer a segregated life. It became all one because there is no difference, you know, in really a business move or a spiritual move. It's all integrity and energy. And it's, that's really, so that's what I'm here to teach. <laughs> No, it's true. It's true. And, you know, as someone who is such a creator, I'm sure you're always thinking about different ideas that come upon you. What was it about poopery that really felt if like change within you to really pursue this specific idea? Yeah, I, well, I had the, uh, what I say often, you know, I say it was a luxury of losing everything and that we rarely have that time for that clean slate of just nothingness, right? So everything was gone. And then you have to really face yourself. Hopefully you face yourself and you don't run into something new. I literally sat and I, I got to look at like, what were you doing? Right? Like I realized, and as I've been telling my story the past two weeks, there was not one single business that was birthed out of passion or anything. It was merely, hey, I can make some money doing that. So I would do that. Right? Oh, you can make a lot of money recruiting. Okay, great. Let me recruit. Oh, you make a lot of money at a, being a cocktail waitress on a casino. Let me do that. And, or, you know, uh, all my side hustle businesses were just to make money. So as I really looked back, I realized that what's worse than losing everything is losing everything and realize you didn't even have a good time doing it in the first place. So then you don't have anything, right? So I made a vow to myself that if I ever get back in the business, that I would only do what I love and what excited me. Because if it can all be washed away, I don't want to look at the past decade or by that point, you know, several decades and look back and think, I never had a good time, right? At least I want something, which are great memories. So um, with Poopery, I remember being at a dinner party and my brother-in-law said, can bathroom odor be trapped? And I felt like this zing at my arm. I felt alive and I immediately just blurted, I can do that. Like I saw it. It was like a flash of something in me. It took me nine months to actually, you know, actually figure it out. Um, but it wasn't like I thought, hey, you can make a lot of money making this product or I never even thought about it being a business. I just knew I could do it. And what was different was that alive feeling in my body. And whenever I teach about alive ideas, I say there's four really distinct characteristics that I've defined um, that happens. One of them is, uh, some sort of body feeling like goosebumps, you know, um, some people, you know, like mine come up my left leg and left arm. You, you have different patterns of how you experience, you know, the goosebumps. And then sometimes one of my friends said, I got goosebumps on my goosebumps. She's so adorable. 
It's one of my uh, shaman friends from Mexico. And, um, and that, um, the idea doesn't go away. It just continues hanging around, you know, you have increased energy. So I was up researching all, you know, I was working on this 14 hours a day for nine months. Nobody had to make me. I was just leaning into it. And also synchronicity. You start seeing that things come to you and, you know, you kind of attract things that you didn't even think, or you're aware, who knows if it's a red car syndrome or if it's the idea of wanting to be alive itself, I'm not sure how that works. But what I do know is that you will start noticing synchronicity. So I had all of that, right? And I still didn't think about it being a business. I just knew I could make this product. So once I made it, then it was so good, I had to share it with the world because I couldn't keep it to myself. I think that's so important to hear the way you even think through what an a live idea is. I'm sure there's a lot of people listening right now, including myself, that have absolutely pursued opportunities that, you know, never made them feel alive. You know, at least for me, I've pursued things that only brought me money. I've pursued things that were considered, you know, impressive in society standards. And it never really brought me that joy. I would ultimately burn out. But hearing you as someone who's so accomplished, who is a business leader running businesses that bring in, you know, over 500 million in revenue, it just shows a validity of that process. So it's great that you're able to share that with us. Going back to Poopery, you decided that you didn't want to raise any money in the early days to get the business off the ground. Can you walk us through how you thought about funding in the early days of Poopery? Yeah, I think I just had a lot of angels around me. Um, you know, I've been bankrupt twice. Um, first time when I was 19. Well, I think I was maybe almost 20. I've got to look back at that. And then 37. And so going into debt or actually owing someone something wasn't appealing to me. And my first um, Christmas, I actually called one of my friends who um, is a you know, a financial guru. And I said, you know, um, his name's Ed. And I said, you know, Ed, I think I have to get an investor. Like, I don't know how I'm going to have enough inventory to get through Christmas. And, um, he, I call him my financial angel. Um, even though it's not an angel investor, he said, you know, you need to keep as much as you of your company, as long as you can like figure it out. And I thought that was the best advice ever. And I listened to that advice. You know, I give people advice all the time and I don't necessarily listen you know, because we think that money is going to solve everything. I have a belief that money doesn't solve things at all. So what I did is I actually went to my suppliers. I went to my manufacturer and asked them, would they partner with me? I said, you know, can I get like 90 or 120 day terms just to get me through the holidays? You know, what can we do here? And they actually ended up making all of my inventory and not charging me until I sold it. So they partnered with me. So I partnered with my suppliers and um, they helped me get through that first Christmas. And then um, we lived on my husband at the time's salary, which was, you know, a, a, a basic middle income salary. It wasn't a lot, but I didn't require a lot. So that every bit of profit, I also had very big margins. I knew that I wasn't great in business, obviously, if you look at my past record. So I knew I needed a really big runway as far as margins so that, um, you know, it's almost like the bumper guards in a bowling lane. You know, you can make a lot of mistakes if you kind of have big margins. So I just kind of intuitively knew that from the past. Uh, one of the biggest mistakes, let me double click on this. If anybody's listening, one of the biggest mistakes that businesses make is I'll make money when 
right? They think they're going to start their business and they're like, oh, I'm going to start it. We're not making any money. There's no profit. But when we get to this size, well, guess what? Chances are you're not going to get to that size, okay? So you need to somehow reduce your cost of goods. You need to make your product look more expensive. You need to do something to make sure that you have those margins in the beginning. So then I just saved and reinvested all the money back into the company. I didn't take a salary for probably four years. Wow. So many key points that you just mentioned. And it's interesting because there's a common theme with a lot of the women that I've interviewed. They highly, highly recommend reinvesting the money into their business. Last week, we also spoke to Tony Co, who was a founder of NYX Cosmetics. And she mentioned the same thing that you're saying and how money isn't necessarily always the solution. So it's just helpful to hear your perspective as well. And you're doing pretty well with Poopery. You were making, looking at the notes, a million a year. So by year eight, you're at eight million. And then you had this viral video that took your company to a whole nother level. I think you tripled your revenue at that point. Can you talk to us about what that looked like at your company? Yeah, yeah, we went really crazy. Um, but really, the, the the video started it started off. You know, we were. I just knew that we couldn't afford traditional advertising. So I found these rogue kind of marketers that were doing this reverse funnel marketing on YouTube. It was a new sort of thing that everybody was doing, or not everybody, very few people were doing. And, um, you know, they assured us that there were no such thing as a viral video in a consumer product. I'm like, okay, great. It really created a lot. Of, it was probably the most hellacious time in our company. It was really bad, you know. Um, because we went from happy world, everybody loved us and we're shipping all of our orders and happy world to, you know, not only had we sold all of our inventory, but we were $4 million in back order in like two days. So everybody about a week later was like, you stole our money. Why haven't you shipped? And I'm like, I couldn't ship them things. So I cut all the ads. I could have been bigger. I could have been deeper in back order if I weren't such an ethical person. But by the time we caught it, I knew I wasn't going to be able to ship them for months. So I, I cut all the ads and we emailed everyone and said, we got caught with our pants down. We don't have the inventory. Do you want to wait on it? And I think we had to refund two orders out of the millions. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's great. It just shows fun. how important it is to be like very open and transparent when you're in yeah. situations like that, because sometimes that that growth and we've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs can put you out of business temporarily. Um so that's oh, really, it did. right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was pretty, it was really bad, really bad. And, you know, um, you know, and again, we've pulled off some miracles. But the thing about business is you're always going to have good times. And you're always going to have bad times. You know, it's just, and you're, you're just a problem solver. So every day you come in, it's just new problem. And as you make more money, your company scales, the problems just get bigger. That's it. And, but, but, and the whole time you're building up, um, a stomach, you know, when I used to think, you know, $10,000 was a lot of money and a big decision. Now millions of dollars, I, my stomach has, you know, I can stomach a, a decision like that. And also you're, um, you're as Marie Forleo, your figure, I call it figure out her muscle before I met her. I was like, I call it figure out her muscle. She call it figure outable, but your, your figure outer muscle gets stronger, you know? So just becomes a bigger game. That, no, that's good to hear because I'm sure, you know, any big decision you do, it's a little intimidating at times. So once you kind of make that jump, make that leap, it gives you a little bit more confidence to even go bigger for the the next run. Yeah. You know, one, one thing you mentioned about yourself is, you know, you thought you were never quote unquote good with business. So you created a product that had high margins. What did your team look like in the earlier days? Like who were your key hires when you were just building 
um, your company? Well, the first hire, I was operating out of my house and the first hire um, was an assistant and I found her on Craigslist. And she came in and she's, you know, I really loved her. She was amazing. And she was, okay, so where, where's the office? And I'm like, oh, you're going to start here. And she's like, okay, it was in my dining room. She's like, okay. So she started, you know, my um, husband at the time had an office and we took over his office. That's where we shipped packages and had all the inventory in the garage. And um, that was my first hire. And then I finally got probably three or four months in, got an office space and it was, teeny, probably 500 square feet. There's a little tiny office, about a bedroom size, probably two, two small bedrooms. And, um, I hired a bookkeeper. Um, that was my second hire and she's still with us today. Her name's Jeanette. Um, yeah, Nina, the first hire, uh, her dream was to, to be an, um, a beautician or I don't know what you call it these days, but anyway, she's an amazing hairstylist. She's an amazing hairstylist. So, Um, I helped her get to school and have her dream, but, um, but Jeanette's still there and it's really funny. Like people try to be so sophisticated, you know, like when I hired my, my bookkeeper, she comes in and she goes, what do you want me to do? And I literally hand her the stack of files and I go do this. And she goes, do what? And I go, just do this, like do that. And she goes, just do these files. And I'm like, yeah. And she goes, okay, great. Like that literally was her job description, right? Just, yeah. just handle it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Figure it out, please. Just figure it out. Just do this, do this stack of files. <laughs> yeah. But, um, and I had people really go, oh, how arrogant you just started. I can't believe you're hiring a bookkeeper. And I said, I hate it that much. So what I knew to do, I knew if I had an assistant, she could handle all the paperwork and calls and things. I knew what my strength was in marketing, branding, and selling. So as far as I could do that, then, um, you know, I knew my assistant could help keep me organized and my bookkeeper could do the finance stuff, which I would honestly probably rather slip my wrist and even, you know, work in accounting. You know, it's just so against my nature. I hadn't balanced my checkbook since I was 15 years old, literally. Um, since my first job. So um, that was my second hire. And then my third hire was a customer service person. And then my boys were, um, my boys were shipping. They were the first uh, fulfillment department, my teenage sons. Yeah. They were in the back. It was awful. They used to hide orders. If you (laughs) like, that's the reason people are like so picky and so worried. I'm like, my God, my businesses are just like people. They're so resilient. You know, when you, if you, if you have a lot of energy, love and passion, so mm-hmm. at the beginning, everyone, I would hire people cheap and um, that could just had muscle, right? It's like you can use a lot with just muscle. You can knock on doors. You can make phone calls. You can stamp together packages. Like that just doesn't take the smartest people. Um, so I think one of the, the myths is that you have to hire all these experts at the beginning. And Clayton Christensen um, I remember I was in Hawaii. I was probably seven years in to the company. I'm laying on the beach and I'm reading this Harvard Business Review article. And I barely read business books, but I read this article and it says, you're seven years old. You've hired your friends and family, anyone that worked cheap, and now you need experts. And I was like, oh, I was like, oh my God. On one hand, I hate to be so predictable, you know, but on the other hand, I'm like, that's me. Like, That's what I did. I hired cheap, you know? So then, you know, you start rotating out because not a lot of those first people are going to be the people that can 
stay with you because you're just hiring people that cheap have muscle. And at some point you need to replace that muscle with some, you know, more um, disciplined people or more, more masters, you know, in, in what they do in those areas. Um, but really that uh, inexpensive, passionate labor helped build, helped build the business, you know. I think that's so key to say because I feel like there are people that are intimidated of starting businesses because they think they need a lot of money. They think they need a lot of experts when in the early stages, you're you're still trying to find product market fit and really understand what you're trying to build and who your consumers are. So it's helpful to hear how you built the core team in the early days of Poopery and really hiring key members who had strengths that you didn't necessarily have. So really having that awareness of what you're good at. And I listened to another interview that you did where you talked about how you used to have office hours every Friday where women entrepreneurs could just pick your brains and ask whatever questions they had for you. But you stopped that because you got frustrated that they weren't really listening. Can you share with us today some of those myths that you think women entrepreneurs or people that you were mentoring had about running their business? Yeah, I think one of them is I have to have a lot of money, that money's going to solve my problems. Um, and that I have to scale fast. You know, those are things I have to scale fast. I have to have a lot of money and I have to hire all these experts, you know, to come in, you know, there's this really, I was recently listening to this talk on evolution and it was saying that Darwin, there are two different people that wrote this, um, the, the basic white paper, whatever you had on evolution, it was Darwin, this guy named Wallace. And because Darwin's name was first, we went with his theory that, um, only the strongest survive. That was sort of the baseline of his um, origin of species. And Wallace's was completely different. His was the weakest get eliminated. So if you think about that, what happened is with even within our consciousness, we developed this competitive this thought of competition. If only the strongest survive, then you better get out of the way, right? When really, if the weakest get eliminated, it's not hard to not be weak, right? You can be average and still be okay. But anyway, so we have this really weird thing in our psyche about competition. Um, but you know, I, I would take businesses and every Friday I would meet with women and I would go through their, you know, through their spreadsheets and they would say they need $2 million. And I would say, no, you're sitting on $800,000 worth of inventory. You know what I'm saying? Like, let's brainstorm ways to do this. Let's get bigger terms with our vendors. Let's, and I would work them out these really elaborate plans. Then they would come back to me and they would say, oh, well, I took, you know, $2 million from 13 men. This is a literal case. And I'm like, you're going to need more money and that money's not going to help you, you know, because number one, you don't even have the resourcefulness to sell what you have, right? So hello, business 101, sell what you got first, you know, and then, you know, try to just hustle and, you know, have a garage sale. You know, this is what you do, Right. Um, but then, you know, of course, and I'm like, you're going to call me back and they're called back and six months later and they're like, or eight months. And I'm like, you need more money. And they're like, yeah, I said, I told you that wasn't going to solve your problem. You know? So I kept having these conversations over and over and very rarely would, I, I did have one woman who was going to file bankruptcy and I, I had a friend of mine and I called her and she was a young entrepreneur. She was Forbes 30 or 30. And I said, Hey, for us, it's fun. I go, a friend's coming over. She thinks she's going to file bankruptcy on her business. Let's, you know, let's get together with these spreadsheets. She's like, oh, yay, you know? So, yeah. 
I love that. Susie's fun time, right? So anyway, yeah, we go through her whole, we go through her whole business, and it ends up just being like, uh, you know, we're like, oh my god, honey, all you got to do is sell your inventory, roll up your sleeves, get going. She ended up not filing bankruptcy exiting very, you know, because bankruptcy creates a lot of problems, even energetically, right? So if we want to talk, you know, Susie's energy world, that's not good karma, okay? You really want to exit as gracefully from anything as much as you can with integrity. Bankruptcy isn't an integrity. Yeah, I said it. It's not an integrity. So I had to do a lot of cleanup from the bankruptcies that I'd filed early on energetically. Um, so that's a really, really, really last resort. So I, my resourcefulness kicked in. I, I, you know, we figured out a plan. We kept touch with her every week. She got herself out of the hole. She's amazing and wonderful. And it really was just easy. It's muscle. So what's happened is a lot of people think that money's going to replace muscle. Mm -hmm. right? It's like, if I get money that I don't have to work as hard, I would rather take way less money and bust my ass for the first, you know, five years of my business than I would taking a bunch of money. And then I owe somebody I'm in debt. Okay. And knowing that you may not make the best decisions for the company because you need to make money, um, Mm -hmm. then, you know, then to take money from someone and be in debt to them. It's true. And I'm sure even, you know, when you feel like you owe someone money, it will kind of push you to make different kinds of business decisions, which, you know, I'm sure before you were 37, you've kind of talked a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I talk a lot about how, you know, I would do those moves like where, you know, I knew a guy thought I was cute. So I'd go to lunch, you know, and I did all the, well, if you do me this favor, then, you know, I owe you one. And it's all these kind of moves that are pretty typical in business, but it's really a very masculine way of doing business that I think a lot of women have adopted. And I know when I looked back, like they just didn't feel good. You know, it wasn't transparent. There was always a motive like networking events. Are you kidding me? They're so gross so gross. Like I've never networked in my life and I seem to be doing fine. You know, it's everybody wants something and it's just, I don't know. I just have an aversion to them. Um, maybe there's one out there. Sorry if you're running one, maybe there's one that is super groovy and awesome, but most of them, it's very much, what can you give me? And Oh, by the way, what can I do for you? It's just so transactional. It drives me crazy. Um, so whenever I looked at those processes, I was like, that just doesn't feel good to me. You know, I just want to, run my business and, and, and be happy and not really have to owe anyone anything. As a matter of fact, I was going to sell my company. I don't know what year that was right before I did the video. That's when it was right before oh, I really? did the video. I went through the process with an investment banker. I think I was offered like $14 million for my company. Thing. At the time? Yeah. Oh my goodness. My, Good husband, my husband at the time was like, that's a lot of money. I'm like, I know I had to make that call. Like, okay. You know, like, no, I was like, shit, this is a big one. Um, but how did you decide to say no at the time when you had your family and your husband really excited about that kind of a deal? Well, I was actually visiting a friend in Atlanta and it's a friend of mine that's a doctor. And he, um, I said, you know, I've got this offer to sell the company. And he said, well, he said, you know, how much are you going to get? And he's like, by the time you get taxes, you're going to end up with about $7 million. He's like, how much are you making a year profit? And I'm like, I'm doing, you know, a million and a half a year. And he said, so basically you're selling the company for four years of revenue. And I was like, what? I was like, oh no, 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 no. I'm not going to do that. So there are two reasons. So I kept the company, but 
yeah, that's it. So I turned that down and they wanted to go back out and pitch again. But what I noticed is I was starting to make decisions to sell the company. So mm-hmm. I called the investment banker and I'm like, I can't do this. And he said, why? And I said, I can't trust myself because I like to sell and I am making yeah. decisions that aren't the healthiest for my company. I'm making decisions to sell the company and that doesn't feel good to me. So I stopped mm-hmm. the whole process. And of course, you know, now I have the company. Um, still, <laughs> it's worth a little bit more. <laughs> so it's, it yeah, a, a lot more. Yeah, more. <laughs> so humble, Susie. <laughs> I still go through those moments like, what are you doing, Susie? You know, you can just get out right now. It happens yeah. all the time. Looking back at your life right now, did you ever expect that you would be in the position you are today and, you know, really create this amazing and big life for yourself? You know, as I've been, it's been so fun going back through my story and them asking, like, how would you feel as a child? What'd you dream of? My dream, literally, my aunt and uncle worked, they were in the military and they had a double wide trailer with plastic on their carpet, you know, and on their, on their couch. So I thought, wow, like if you get it, my mom had told me that if you get money at a factory or the post office, if you get a government job, like you're set, right? Like you're set for life. So my big dream was a factory job or to work at the post office, which is great. If you work at the post office, that's awesome. But no, I never dreamt this. You know, I still don't know if I have any huge dreams, you know, it's just life. And why would I dream? Because my life has been so much bigger than anything I've ever dreamt. I don't want to really these very limiting dreams that my psyche is going to come up with would would really limit me. I love that your life became even bigger than your wildest dreams. And it just shows how important it is for all of us to just think really big because you never know what could happen. What did you do in your own life to bring this level of abundance? Well, I'll tell you what I have. I just read an article. Maybe we can attach it to here. It was in Medium. And it was like the top secret of successful people. Ask Lisa to send it because I just... I sent it out to my team, but it was like the number one secret was the ability to shed everything. Wow. Right. So a really successful person has an ability to go, let's strip all this back and let's rebuild. Right. And that's what I did. So after my second bankruptcy, I literally stripped everything down within my psyche, within my consciousness, within my belief systems. And then I was able to rebuild from a completely different place because had I just gone off and did my same MO, I would have created exactly the same. So what I did, so, and we don't give ourselves, this is what we're doing in a live OS. Um, we have a process of really deprogramming yourself, some of these really core blocks so that you can put new programs in because we're all just programmed, you know, from a very, very early age. That's so true. And we'll make sure to include that article in our show notes. And I think it's so powerful how you mentioned, you know, successful people are able to strip everything back and rebuild. I mean, your entire life shows how you've mastered that. After going through two bankruptcies, a lot of people at that point would just, you know, completely be lost and not know what to do. And you really started from scratch and rebuilt something that's even bigger than what you could have even expected. And you mentioned briefly about this new program that you're doing, Alive OS. Can you share more with our listeners what that course is about? Yeah, it was really fun. So I remember I wrote this program 14 years ago, I was telling you, no, you know, five people came and then they 
didn't anymore. I'm still friends with them, thank goodness. Um, but I was having my my company gifted me an astrology reading a couple of years ago, and I've not been into astrology. It's a complicated system to me. I'm like, oh, you know, your stars and your whatever. And um, she says, um, you did something 13 years ago the world wasn't ready for, and now it is. And she said, and it's time. And I was like, well, that's weird. And I look over and there's this binder that my ex-husband had literally brought over the week before. And my assistant set it on my desk. And it was that course that I wrote 13 years ago. And I was like, I wrote this course 13 years ago. And she goes, yeah. She goes, you're going to teach people about money and energy. And I was like, wow, okay. So I was talking with my friend. So I didn't do anything about that. I was like, okay, thanks, astrologer. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, I'll put that on my list. And then I was talking with my friend, uh, my heart coach, J.P. Sears. And um, he said something like, um, he said, oh, Joseph Campbell has a quote. The cave you fear holds the treasure you seek. And oh, I love that. It's really good because actually we have a whole section that we, we really work this very well because if you really get into that, you will get to a snot crying fear. Like that mm-hmm. you, it's, it's like, it's like Marianne Williamson says, it's not, you know, it's not our weaknesses. It's, it's our bigness that we fear. And when you get into that and identify and I'm snot crying and he's like, what do you, what, what have you always known? but you fear to even speak. And I was like, I'm a global spiritual leader. Like somehow those words came out of my mouth and because that's really my priority. Right. And yeah. yeah. And uh, he goes, well, what's your action step? And I looked down, there's the binder. And I said, I'm going to start this course. I'm going to rewrite it. So I was doing an entrepreneur group um, in Dallas and I asked 25 women, if I wrote this course, would you be willing to show up every two weeks and give me feedback? And they were like, yeah. And there was no feedback at all. <laughs> we, we did the, we did eight lessons and they were just like sponges. All their lives changed. And now we have it online and yeah, yeah, it's really pretty awesome. So we have 150 people in the course right now. Um, mostly women, it was going to be all women's course. And then we had four guys like really, uh, push their way in, which was adorable. Um, so we will open it up next time. I already have over 800 people on the waiting list for the next one, um, which will happen probably late August or September. Amazing. And is that wait list still open if people want to yeah. check you out and join? Okay. Yeah, they awesome. can. And we'll have lots of new, we just did a four week mark a couple of weeks ago and 68% of people said their lives have already changed. Wow. Which is pretty rad. That's huge. How amazing. I'm sure there's so many wise words that you can share from the wealth of experience, you know, you've gone through in your entire life. So we'll definitely link it to our show notes for any of our listeners who are interested in learning more. So I want to switch gears and Get your thoughts on fear. What advice do you have for our listeners who are trying to overcome something they're scared of or that they're fearful of? Yeah. So actually, you know, someone just called me yesterday, some, a family member, and they're like, you know, can you help me walk through the difference in fear? Like, how do I know if I'm afraid because I'm excited and I'm expanding or if I'm afraid because it's a bad idea? And I have a general rule that my teachers, Gay and Katie Hendricks, taught me is that um, a fear that is a no 
is a really deep thump in my belly. Like it's a, it's, it's like a weight, like somebody put a bowling ball in my stomach right above my pelvis. It's, it's really dense and pretty gross when I tune into it. Right. And a fear of expansion is kind of up in my chest and I kind of smile and I'm sweaty and I'm like, oh my God, I'm terrified. But the whole time, you know, I'm having a different reaction in my body. So that's the first thing. Um, well, that's the second thing. Let's go back to the first thing you should do is look around. My mentor, Gay Hendricks, taught me this, is that our brains are programmed for fear and survival, but we're not programmed for abundance, love, and joy. So if you have to think about where we came as a species, we are competition. We are programmed to take everybody out and to just survive, right? We are going to be one of the strongest. Um, and with that comes a lot of fear. We're going to die. If we're not the strongest, we're going to die. So that is literally, I hate to tell you or not, you are conditioned like that from a very young age. Um, but that particular, so you have to look around and number one, be smart. Is there really anything to be terrified of? For example, if you're afraid about finances, if I'm ever afraid about money, I call my CFO and I'm like, Hey, I feel something. I feel scared. Well, let's, let's talk about this. Is there something I need to be scared about or aware of? He'd be like, no, you're great. And I'm like, okay, some weird random fear. So first of all, is there a real problem or a real danger? If there's not, then it's probably just a aversion to expansion. So you just need to look at whatever that is, you know, and do some inner work on that um, and realize that any time, any time that you are moving into a greater state of being, you're going to be afraid. Like that's just part of it. You know, if, if you're not afraid, then you're not, you know, that whole do something that you're scared of every day. Well, the truth of that is if you want to keep expanding and growing, you're going to do stuff that puts you on the edge. Mm -hmm. And keyword, if you want to go down that route, that's, you know, what you need to do to really evolve and get outside your comfort zone. But that's an amazing answer to how you deal with fear. And thank you so much for sharing that. Mm -hmm. So many gems in this interview. I'd love to close on one last question that we like to ask all of our guests. And we touched a little bit on this throughout the interview, but wealth means so much more than money. And everybody has our own definition of wealth. Mm. For you now, what does wealth mean to you? Wealth to me, really, I was just having this conversation yesterday. I often tell people if I put on a backpack right now and if, I, if that's all I have and walk down the street, I'll be fine. And I literally say that on so many podcast interviews. And then somehow I just heard myself. And I said, you know what I really desire is freedom. Like that's what I desire. So wealth to me is freedom. It's freedom to do what I want when I want. And, and that has nothing to do with money. You know, I could probably have that on a picnic bench. You know, when I was young, my uh, grandma and grandpa used to, we had a box of crackers, a stick of bologna, a six pack of Mountain Dew. And we would go off for the day and, you know, up into the woods and sit on a picnic bench. And that was freedom to me. You know, that was mm -hmm. really, so as long as I can create my life where I have freedom to create and to explore, then that to me as well. I love that. Thank you so much, Susie, for being with us today. I could probably talk to you for many more hours, but we appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. I think we got into flow. <laughs> I know we did. We did. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, go to BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. 
I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.